Welcome to episode 37 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. We are recording in a different spot today, so if we have some weird audio issues, that's probably why, as we couldn't record in Clayton's office this week. We had to be somewhere else. And we continue with kind of wrapping up the Old Testament on this episode. We have some readings from the middle section of Ezra, the entire book of Esther, finishing out Daniel, and then also the entirety of Haggai and Zechariah. So we will dive in. All right, let's do Daniel. So we read from Daniel chapter 10 through chapter 12, verse 13. And I remember from last week, one of the things we didn't have time to talk about but wanted to this week was Daniel chapter 7. Oh, yeah. Just because that's very significant. Yeah. Well, let's just start off with that. Pastor Clayton, why is Daniel chapter 7 very significant? <laughs> it is. It's a big deal. So Daniel 7 was one of the... Um, was particularly popular among the Jews in the first century because of the, the promises it made and the... Uh, particular description of the Son of Man that is described in it. And so there, uh, there's a lot of prophecy there, but in particular was this incredibly hopeful picture of the Messiah. And so that starts in verse 13 from the prophet Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we see a lot of language here um, that is that son of man piece is something that's appropriated by Jesus in the New Testament. That's why it's, it's popular to us. It was well known at the time as well because it talks about the four beasts and it talks about the the kingdoms that are conquering um, Israel and that was very relevant for them at the time and so they spent a lot of time in this part of Daniel because the title or the the I mean I guess title is the right word but the title son of man seems to have been Jesus's favored way of referring to himself I mean he, that's usually what he called himself if he if he referred to himself uh, and so, yeah, obviously Daniel 7. I mean, son of man is a phrase that's used other places. Ezekiel, I think, would be mm-hmm. a notable uh, part of the scripture. But not, I think it's emphasized a lot in Daniel and Ezekiel the most. You know, so mm-hmm. just saying it's likely, you know, as Jesus is referring to himself, that that's not just a general statement of like, I'm a human being, which is part of what right. that means, but that more pointedly, he's referring back to prophecies like Daniel 7, um, or maybe some of the passages in Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. And the passage in Daniel really does seem to give us a good picture of the ascension of Jesus, what happens after the resurrection, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Mm-hmm. He approaches the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And I mean, this is... This is the ascension, and then we see kind of the end of things, right? So he's given dominion that's everlasting, a dominion that will never pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so um, I think that that is a, another piece of this, is that for us, as we look at this, we see part of the Jesus story just very clearly told in these passages. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that I'm glad you pointed that out about the ascension, because Jesus when he's on trial, you know, and they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he says, 
truly I tell you, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And I think the kind of the knee-jerk reading for a lot of Christians is to read that as him referring to the second coming. But actually, in light of Daniel 7, Jesus is referring to his ascension yes. and his his kind of joining God the Father on the throne of the universe. Mm-hmm. Not a, I mean, that's not like a like an earth-shaking change, but I mean, I think it does help us understand, like, because in some ways, Jesus' answer doesn't quite make sense, you know, like, okay, so <laughs> don't worry, high priest, in three, four thousand years, uh-huh. you will see the Son of Man come, you know, but it's like, no, no, like in a month, uh-huh. in a month, you know, that, um, so I think that, yeah, that just, that gives some more, I think, detail there. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit, and you mentioned this too, with these, especially these prophecies in Daniel, we see a lot of the symbolism of mm. the nation's pictured as beasts and monsters uh whereas or at least it seems like the distinction is kind of drawn with israel kind of being represented by this son of man and so like what i mean there's there's much that could be said but just kind of in a basic symbolic way like what is being communicated that the gentile especially the imperial gentile nations are pictured here and really throughout scripture i mean if you read the psalms you know you read a lot of the poetry throughout the Bible that, that the other kingdoms are pictured as snakes or lions or bulls or, or whatever else. Yeah. Like, what is going on there that the Gentile nations are pictured as these beastly Oof. creatures? But Israel, and Israel sometimes is, you know, stubborn cow and so on and so forth. But yeah, so just what, Oof. what do you think is going on with the symbolism? Well, there's a couple of things there. Um, I think that every, every um, animal that's pictured is not a, I, I might be wrong on this. Am I right? None of them are clean. Oh. Uh, like the bulls. The bull is clean. Yeah, bulls Never mind. Clean. My bad. Yeah. But, I mean, apart from that, and the, you're right. I think the general yeah. idea there is that these are, these are not good, holy things. And they are powerful things for the most part. Especially with the descriptions of the, of mm. the beasts themselves. We see these are, are very powerful, mm-hmm. frightening things. And these are supposed to symbolize the empires that are going to conquer in this area. This was a very tumultuous few hundred years here with empires conquering, rising, falling. Once Assyria fell, it just started dominoes. Babylon rises up, Persia rises up, eventually Greece rises up, and then Rome. And we get this this turnover in this part of the world. And each of those empires in turn is going to be a problem for Israel. Mm -hmm. And so... What Daniel is being told is that these powerful beasts that no one could hope to stand against on their own are all going to be involved in the oppression of God's people. But there's also a promise of hope that comes at the end of it, that Mm -hmm. God's people will survive all of that. Um, I do think we get, there's a lot of suspicion that the Roman Empire is, is described in uh, by some of these beasts, and that those are the ones who uh, who last the longest, like they're the, the final beasts. Mm-hmm. And I just think that this was for Daniel at the time. Um, it was pre-knowledge about the future that was really important. And we're going to see more of that even more clearly in chapter 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, point. That, that Even in the case of the bulls, you know, which are technically clean, you know, but they're all wild you know, and, and throughout the Torah, especially, I mean, bulls are the problem animal, mm-hmm. goring people and breaking loose and, you know, and these other things. And so uh, the golden calf, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, so it's there's there's this kind of the sense of like these these wild beasts, I guess, would be the 
the way. I mean, they're not picturing the Gentile nations as like spiders and geckos. No, they're not. <laughs> these are terrifying. Like right? the little things that live around the house. Like these are the beasts that are outside yeah. of human control and, and can't be tamed. Um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think there's just adding on to that of like even hearkening back to Genesis and, you know, that humans originally were supposed to have authority over all these things and we lost that. Mm. And now, you know, these the kind of the beastly impulses, you know, are what rule yeah. again, not just the foreign Gentile nations, but also often Israel itself. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus, John the Baptist refers to Israel's leadership as a den of snakes, you know, so I mean, there's, there's a, yeah, I think it's just a powerful symbolism to think about, um, that, you know, I mean, even with Cain that God tells him sin is crouching at your door, you know, kind of with the sense of like it's an animal, mm-hmm. you know, outside the tent. Like, but you can con- conquer it if you try. Of course, we know how the story of Cain and Abel right. goes. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's just this powerful, I think, uh, image. And it also makes sense. Like, and I'm not denying that Daniel had supernatural foreknowledge, but just the the commentary on the way of the way that human power kind of goes that it abhors a vacuum. You know, so like, okay, so one empire is defeated. But that doesn't mean that it's all good now. Like someone else is not going to show up and take control. And that it keeps getting like it's this arms race almost like this escalation. Because <laughs> yeah. the other thing that changes is each of these empires is bigger. They keep getting bigger until you get to Rome, which encompasses almost the entire known world Yes, for them uh, by the end. And, and uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. So let's move on with Daniel. Uh, what did you think of the later chapters of Daniel? Yeah, there's a lot, you know, so, and we, we referenced this, I think, in the first week or two that we got into Daniel, that there's some, in the scholarship, there's a there's discussion, or really, I think, at this point, the opinion, which, I mean, that doesn't mean it's true, but just the, the consensus right now is that Daniel was written quite late, uh, maybe within the, the, you know, three to four hundred years before Jesus which I guess would have been about when he wrote when his when when would the when was the historical Daniel alive, like, like six hundred BC five hundred BC yeah. So, just because there's a lot, especially here at the end, these last few chapters, there's a lot of of theology that isn't brand new, but is like, you know, whoa, that's kind of a new thought, you know, in the in the flow of scripture, um, and just the the uh, accuracy of some of the predictions, I think, again, you know, secular-minded folks, the assumption is that it must have been written after the events, not before, because there's just no way that somebody can the predict, whole case it, for late predict it down to the detail. Is that. Yeah. I think there's some language things and things, but, um, and, and like we've said, every one of the books of the Bible was edited and, and read, you know, uh, there's, you know, it passed through several, what we would call editors, which is all part of the the inspiration process, um, but we see a lot of emphasis on like angels and mm-hmm. the angelic in these chapters in a new, in a different way, I think, or I should say in a that they're bringing something out that I think has been present the whole time, but they're sharpening it's it. invisible. Um, the, the idea of spiritual warfare has not really been emphasized, I think, in the Old Testament up to now, or it's only been. At the level of Yahweh himself fighting against yes. Leviathan or the sea monsters, you know, some of these other things. Um, not 
oh, Daniel, your individual prayers were somehow caught up in some kind of a conflict in the yeah. spiritual realm. I mean, that's a brand new, you know, brand new idea. Well, we have it at the bookends, right? It is in the beginning with Genesis that's and true. Job. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But so it's just interesting there. Um, you know, we get, I think, the first clear reference to resurrection here at the end of Daniel, uh, which is... I mean, we obviously will hear a lot more about that in the New Testament. But again, I think that's been something that's been present, you know, from the beginning. But th- th- this is the first time that that someone kind of just comes out and just says, you know, or predicts that, that something like this is what's going to happen, yeah. um, which is interesting. Ezekiel but, leaves us with a picture of it, but it, it's mm-hmm. not clear like it is in Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. So chapter 11 is wild because it is not a normally prophecy, especially prophecy about the future is is like vague or it's parabolic or anything. Mm -hmm. This looks like a historian after the fact is writing down a series of events using them with future language. And that's not what happened. Um, Daniel is, is written before these things come. But we get an incredible description of what's gonna happen with the fall of, with Alexander the Great, the fall of Alexander the Great, the splitting of his, Mm -hmm. his empire, the splitting of those empires. All the way up to Antiochus Epiphanes, who is uh, the fourth, who is um, a real bad guy. A real bad guy. <laughs> like, and that's that's here. And I don't know that we need to go through step by step what these things say, because it's pretty clear. It's mm-hmm. just written. This is what's going to happen. This mm-hmm. one's going to have a daughter, and the daughter is going to do this, and it's not going to work. And what I can tell you is that commentators have connected this pretty effectively to real historical events. These are not things that Daniel is saying that did not come to pass. These are mm-hmm. these are real and clear, crisp connections to historical events. It's kind of wild. But the king who exalts himself is almost certainly Antiochus the mm-hmm. fourth, who is the one who takes over the temple and mm-hmm. sacrifices pigs. Pigs in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does a lot, and I, I did just want to point out, if if you want to know more, I mean, you can just Google the history, but then also some of the books in the, uh, what we Protestants refer to as the Old Testament Apocrypha, the Maccabees, mm-hmm. First and Second Maccabees, um, are the history here. Uh, and so this is what's happening really between the Testaments. Um, sometimes we like to characterize those centuries as like the centuries of silence. Uh I mean, the Maccabees aren't scripture, so I'm not saying we should just take everything, but they come from that time and they're telling us that things were happening, people were seeing angels, miracles were occurring, like it wasn't just, and then they sat around for 400 years waiting for God to talk. That's not quite accurate. Um, But anyway, it's a heartening story. I mean, there's a reason I think why it didn't wind up being accepted, you know, more broadly in the Bible and uh, the New Testament, I think for the most part, doesn't quote from it although that's also true for ecclesiastes and esther but um anyway i just wanted to point that out if you want to know more read first maccabees or second maccabees actually i think is a little better flows a little better yes but uh um why so maybe we can circle back we talked a little bit about well let's let's stick with daniel 11 here for a minute like what is the point or what, what is the intended, you know, so we've talked a lot about how, you know, the Bible, the books of the Bible are written certainly to convey truth, to tell us true things, but also, and these things are not exclusive, they're connected, but to transform the people mm-hmm. reading it, hearing it. 
So like, what is the, what would, what, what would you say is the, the teaching or the wisdom, the formative uh, uh, goal for a chapter like Daniel 11 that lays out the history in such exact detail? I think pretty clearly a chapter like Daniel 11 is meant to tell, to reassure us who God is, how powerful he is, and the, a promise that he is at work for the good, even when in the moment that's hard to see. So these historical events cover a long stretch of time. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a bad spot, being able to read what's coming and then living through some of those events would be a tremendous reminder of the power and sovereignty of God. Mm. Um, and even if you're after those events, the memory of your people reading those books as mm-hmm. those events were happening would be tremendously comforting yeah. because the story doesn't end in despair. It ends with hope. Right. Have you ever heard, I don't remember, have you ever heard the story uh, of when Alexander the Great, when his armies reached Jerusalem and the reason that they didn't conquer it or destroy it is because the priests brought out the scroll of Daniel and read it to him and he was so impressed by it that he left the city alone. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I did not just make that up. I'm pretty sure that's an ancient story. Whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. But that's what I've heard, or I've, I've seen references to that in the past. That that because uh, Alexander was pretty superstitious, and so I he think was. That he was he was very you know impressed and impressed upon by the fact that the Judean people had prophesied his rise a couple hundred years before it all happened. Yeah, because he made sacrifices. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I'd never heard that before. I that would be something. Yeah, might be a legend. Might be a legend. I mean, my <laughs> gut would have been. I don't know if he would have seen Jerusalem as a place worth conquering. Like it was not in great shape when he came. Well, from. that's true. That's. But that's the other fair. thing that's that's important about the positioning of eleven is the the claims made in twelve are a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like talking about the end times, talking about resurrection, and like we are accustomed to this. And again, this, the, the idea has been in scripture, but imagine being told you're going to die and then you're going to come back. Like that's a big deal. And the, the, the need for the chapter just beforehand to do something like prove the power and sovereignty of mm-hmm. God over history to be able to trust such a big promise in 12, I think makes sense to me. Hmm. You know, and I think that it also helps us kind of situate the resurrection, the idea of resurrection, not just as like a theological proposition that we either believe or disbelieve, but that as the Judean people continue, the exile quote, quote unquote ends, but doesn't end. Gentile empires are still oppressing them. As we reference, things get really, truly, probably the worst under Antiochus or however yes. you said it. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, like he, he very cruelly intentionally tries to, shut down, you know, what we would call Judaism today. You know, he didn't succeed, but I mean, he, he only didn't succeed because of the armed resistance of people like Judas Maccabeus and, and his band of, of uh, bandits. Uh, the hammer. The hammer, yeah. Well, and just so that it was so bad that I think on a national level and certainly on an individual level, right, people people are questioning, like, what, what does the justice of God mean if this is happening to us? Yes, and we're dying. And I think that the resurrection, the revelation of that through Daniel, I think is part of the answer of this idea of like, you know, that the story doesn't end with your death. 
Because, and we've referenced this a few times as we've gone through the Old Testament, and I think if you've been reading attentively, then you've noticed this, that in some ways, the Old Testament is mm, a little foggy on what exactly happens to us after we die. <laughs> yes. Or that there's several ways, you know, like there's multiple ways that they talk about it, right? That, that you know, I mean, obviously there's an emphasis on children and, and kind of, you know, that's sort of your... your your, your lasting life is through your children, you know, but when they talk about Sheol, the pit, I mean, it's a, not a place that is is good for anybody to go to. You know, the Psalms especially seem to really emphasize, like, when they're crying out to Yahweh for deliverance, like, wouldn't you rather me be alive so I can praise you? Because once I'm dead, that won't happen. <laughs> but then you also have these references like Psalm 73 that, you know, that whom have I in heaven but you and, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but... Yahweh is my portion forever, or just this idea that there is, it is possible for people to be with Yahweh in some way. I mean, David references that when his, his first son Bathsheba dies, you know, so I mean, it's just this ambivalency of like, we yeah. don't really, they don't, they didn't really know, you know, yes, God, the, the creator, God is faithful, but also people die and they stay dead. <laughs> yes. Except occasionally for like the two or three people that Elijah and Elisha brought back. Or Elisha's bones. Yeah, but then they died anyway. Again, uh-huh. they died know? again. <laughs> they died again, and so it's just this. I think this sense of at least we think they well, died again. And so anyway, just saying that you know, resurrection kind of situated in that you know that resurrection is also in some ways it's an answer I think to the problem of evil. Yes. Oh yeah, it's very. It isn't. It isn't right because it again it's not a solution. Meaning you'll still have to go through the evil. <laughs> you know, but like there is a and Daniel I think does this in, in an interesting way that, that he just he. He articulates that everyone will rise again, but some will do that to everlasting life, and some will do that for everlasting. I mean, it's punishment, the Christian concept, you know? and so it's just like, whoa! I mean, that's that's uh, yeah, frightening, <laughs> awe-inspiring. <laughs> well, this was the wrestling match people had with the promises of the covenant if they lived righteously mm-hmm. and expectations, right? Of and then things went badly, <laughs> and so they could not reconcile and and struggled with this. How, how can God's promises be true if he's telling us that if we are good and righteous, good things are going to happen mm-hmm. and we're experiencing bad ones? Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is them coming up with the answer, but it is an answer God supplies is that the, when you close your eyes for the last time here, that is not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very good. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, the, the ideas of new creation, new heavens and a new earth, you know, have been present since almost... You know, I mean, I think the flood story is a new creation story, you know, so I mean, it's this idea of like, this will have to be, I don't want to say done over again, because it's still the, you know, it's, it is and it isn't the same creation, right? Just like you are and you aren't the same person, you know, Jesus was himself, but was also different in ways that are intensely puzzling. (laughs) Yes. You know, so it's like, yeah, just that, I think that that it's been, it's been present in the Old Testament for the big picture. And I think Daniel has has brought it down to the individual of like, and you as a person will share in this, this, this resurrection and this redoing redoing is not quite the right word, but yeah. All right. Any other Daniel thoughts? No. You want to move on to Ezra? Sure. All right. So yes, our, our readings in Ezra this week are mostly male. Yeah. A lot of male. (laughs) Um, the, the only thought I had with Ezra is, and we just referenced it, that this is mostly male, but can you just kind of help us understand the back and forth here? Like, why is this happening? 
you know, that there's that these letters are going back and forth from the Persian government oh, to yeah. the to the province. So you've got in the story at the beginning of the story of Ezra, we find out that God's people are they're going about the work of rebuilding the temple. We find out from Haggai that that had and Zechariah that that had been like stalled, and Ezra tells us that story as well. Um, but it is in process. But as they do this, there's pushback from some of the local peoples. And these are people of partly Jewish descent and partly other, other descent. And that ends up escalating. The, the, the people call the manager and have the manager send a letter to the CEO. You know, they, they, an official sends a letter to um, Darius, the king of Persia or Babylon, as it's called here. And they also refer to it as Assyria at some point as I, well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are, in their minds, that's all the same. Oh, right. <laughs> and so the um, what happens is they're asking, these people are claiming that they were given dispensation by Cyrus to do this. But we're a little alarmed because like they're talking about how this was this temple was built by their kings. And that sounds like rebellion talk. Mm-hmm. So what are we supposed to do? And, and Jerusalem has been uppity in the past. Yes. Yeah. Jerusalem is a problem area. Yeah. And in like has been throughout the world's history, even from here on. And so the letter comes back from Darius, who the Babylonians and the Persians just seem to have kept meticulous records, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. I don't think we'd ever had a world power care so much about reports until Babylon. And well, just, it's real or, helpful for history. Or even able to right. know, and, produce and such things. And they've survived. You right. know, the, but um, Persia has all these reports. And so they look back and they find, yes, indeed, Cyrus promised them not only that they could go and rebuild their temple, he gave them all the money that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple. And he, was, he promised them royal help with anything they needed to rebuild the temple. And so the letter comes back and says, absolutely do it. We want that God of heaven to like us, and so let's go for it. Because that was the idea of the Persians. It was revolutionary. All the Every other major civilization up to this point had thought, if we can conquer you, then your gods don't matter. Right. Persia is the first to think, let's just make every god happy mm-hmm. as much as we can. And so they, they react favorably to the Jews, and that is kind of the, that's the, I think, what's behind the letter back and forth. Okay. Um, I, is there any more like Ezra's secretly a bad guy that you found in these chapters? <laughs> no, not really. Okay. Because the only thing I could come up with is what happens in 10. And that's what I'm excited to talk about tomorrow. It's, it's a sticky problem. Yes, yes. All right. Tell us about Haggai, Pastor Ben. What about Esther? Tell us about Esther, Pastor Ben. I mean, what order do I, I just... I had Esther last because oh, okay. chronologically, Esther, I think, happens last. Okay, we can do Haggai then. Uh, <clears throat> so Haggai is a very short book, which is obvious. You'll notice that. Uh, and he's mentioned, he and Zechariah are mentioned in Ezra. And so these things are are happening all concurrently. Haggai's emphasis is kind of criticizing this stalling of the construction process for the temple you know, we know Ezra's telling us kind of the social, social, political uh, geography of just like why is this happening and, and and what's going on. And Haggai obviously is approaching it from a prophetic perspective of saying, "Look, 
Yahweh has brought you back. You've been commanded to do this. And part of the reason why things have not gone really great in Judea since you've been back is because you have neglected some of these these duties and responsibilities. Um, so that's the yeah. That's Haggai. I wondered, so a fine point is put on what you just described in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, which reads, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your, your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in the purse with holes in them. And so he's saying that that's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's not going well because of it. Um, this is an aside, but this is how I got there. A while ago, I received an email from a former attender saying that you know, applying this to to Calvary, and it was silly, and I gave it as much attention as it warranted. But one of the things that I am, I do think about when I read this is the American church is struggling. There's a real struggle. And I mean, there is more effort and money being put forward into the advancement of ministries in America than ever before in history, with, with decreasing returns over and over and over again. Do we think that some of the the problems of the American church are caused by a problem of priorities? And if so, what would repenting of that look like? In other words, if Haggai was here today, what would his letter look like? What would he be saying we're doing wrong? Yeah, that's a very, that's a good question. That's a very complicated question, I think. Because I think it's it's too simplistic. I mean, Haggai does it in two chapters. It's true, but he was a prophet That's speaking true. with divine authority, <laughs> of which I am not. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but I think that we can the the temptation I think is to fixate on a single thing and say, okay, it's that. This is why you know the church is is struggling so much. And I you know I I, I don't I don't think that people are totally wrong when they do fixate. Like, they're not wrong about the thing they're fixating on, but they're wrong to fixate solely on that one thing, right? So, whatever. We can start rattling off the thing. It's like, yeah, all of it. Yes to all. You know, I mean, it is it is just rough, you know, right now. You know, I, I wonder if... And some of these things I think we really should be thinking about and and should handle differently. But I, I, I wonder, too, if that it's not so much here's a million things you all need to be doing better because that's really not Haggai's point. He's saying there's a million things that are going wrong, but there's just this one thing that you actually just need to refocus on and these things may take care of themselves. So that's not what he says, right? The Lord will bless you in these things. You know, so I think for us, we do get way too caught up, way too caught up in whatever our political leaders are currently yanking strings on to get people to hate each other like and that, i mean that needs to end and that needs to end for conservative people as much as it does for more liberal people because a lot of those debates are ultimately meaningless <laughs> well not only meaningless but the, the divide and the they're there. and they're fake like the manipulation of us as a society by our leaders is real and i'm not trying you know so let's put on our conspiracy hats, but I mean, like, it's happening. Yeah. And they it's happening because they know it works. It's a cheap, easy way to get people to vote for you is if you can make them mad about this other group of people or afraid of it's this other group of people. Way, yeah. 
and uh, circling back to the whole idea of our beastly animal instincts taking over. I mean, that's, you know, we're watching that happen to the United States of America, you know, for who knows how it all turn out. It didn't go great for the beasts in Daniel. Um, that's true. And so, you know, I think that that we can, yeah, we just get so caught up in these things that either aren't actually ultimately important or that we can't actually do anything about or that we don't really have like the, that are just not as important as they're being made out to be. And so I think that, again, all of that to say that for us to, to refocus on the good news itself, on Jesus himself, you know, and certainly his call to righteousness, to holiness, to compassion, and those things have practical ways that they actually work out in our lives. But that, that he is the thing, not winning our country back whatever that even means, not protecting the culture, not gaining political blah, power. blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and because uh, even reflecting on the history of Israel and Judah, right? It's, I mean, that's, yes, idolatry was a part of that too, but I think also them just reaching for things that they weren't supposed, that were just not for them, chariots, horsemen, military power, political alliances. And we, I mean, we talked many times that idolatry was very intimately bound up in all of that, right? If you want to get friendly with your big, powerful neighbor next door, then you need to start worshiping your big, powerful neighbor's God. So, yeah. So I think all that to say that, that, you know, the, yeah, that, that we would, that Haggai's message for us, maybe we could say is that to, to just stop being distracted and wasting our time and energy on these other things. And focus on you know, Jesus, and and to focus, which it's like, okay, great, but what does that actually mean? It's like, okay, I, I hear that. I don't, I don't know if this is the time, you know, to, to get into all of that, mm-hmm. but just that I think that is the, that is the call, you know, and we will, I think, continue to struggle in the ways that we've been struggling, in as much as we are are distracted. I agree. You know, and 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 that our worship is pulled away to things that we ought not be worshiping i mean that's that's really what it boils down to i thought that was a great answer thank you what about zechariah yeah zechariah is an interesting i mean they're all interesting but zechariah is interesting because there seems to be two pretty distinct like sections of zechariah there's the not so wild visions at the beginning. They're pretty tame compared to like Revelation or some of these other. And and they all seem pretty straightforward. Like it's, I mean, it's symbolism, but I mean, I, I read Zechariah and it's like, all right, like I get what he's, he's trying to say, you know, and that, that God is with Jerusalem. He's, he's going to, you know, bless them, raise up the city, uh, kind of reaffirming, you know, throughout these prophets, and in Ezra, we've seen mentioned over and over Zerubbabel and Joshua, or, or Jeshua, the high priest and the governor, or excuse me, Zerubbabel's the governor, Joshua's the high priest. And which makes sense. They're the leaders of Judea at this time. Um, and uh, so Zechariah seems to want to kind of reaffirm them that they're God's anointed for this, for this day and age. I mean, and J- Joshua, it seems like is focused on a lot in Zechariah and the first part of Zechariah of like standing before the kind of divine court being accused by the the devil, you know, and, and him being given these new robes. It's like, no, he's he's good. He's yeah. purified. Or the whole olive oil, olive tree symbolism, you know, that they're the anointed ones. Um, and so you have that. And then Zechariah seems to shift around eight or nine into much more of this like pointed, like 
all of your leaders are terrible and Yahweh is the only one you can rely on. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting because in, in, if you think about it in terms of the span of a prophet's career, you know, it's like, all right, so we start off very hopeful about Zerubbabel and Joshua and then either if it's them themselves or if it's the people who come after them are not up to snuff right. and Zechariah is going to tell them, you know, tell them about that. Yeah. So Esther... I love the Book of Esther. Um, uh, Martin Luther hated the Book of Esther as an aside. He just could not stand it. Um, but I, I do love the Book of Esther. It is a tremendous book. But I, I know that Pastor Ben has a special love for the Book of Esther. And so I'd love to hear of the books of the Bible you've been giddy about in my time knowing you at Calvary. It has been Deuteronomy, it has been Leviticus, and it has been Esther. <laughs> All right. Am I, I mean, wrong? I believe you. <laughs> well, you went and saw your uh, Lauren's husband's that's musical. Ruth. 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 That was Ruth, not Esther. Yeah. My bad. No, that's all right. That's all right. Never mind. Well, never mind. Ben there's there's only Esther. a couple books named for the ladies, so it's easy to get them mixed up. Dang it! I can't believe I messed that up. You're right. It's Ruth. No, I mean, we love Esther. Esther. We love Esther. We Esther's Esther. great. So well, now I understand why the look of like, huh, hmm. on your face. <laughs> It's like, oh, I must have mentioned it. <laughs> Maybe once. Nicely once. <laughs> he latched onto that. So uh, tell us, though, non-Esther you know, person uh, yeah. about that. I think that Esther is one of those, uh, most of us are, are fairly familiar. I mean, it's it's a good story. And, and it's definitely crafted as a story. You know, I think that, that uh, the part of the struggle, you know, that Esther, whether or not it's, it's or it ought to be part of the Bible, you know, I mean, I think that it, it we're not sure if the... The uh, pre-Jesus Judeans, like that, they they seem to be a little ambivalent. I mean, it's not included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. And so this is like, was it scripture or not? And I think for the Christians, I don't know if there was as much debate by that point. I think for Christians, it was always considered scriptural. I mean, obviously later yeah. later people like and Martin a lot Luther of the Judeans, were like, yeah, a lot of the Judeans <laughs> loved it. Like there are quotes about how Esther and the Law are the two things you absolutely need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, and it's a powerful story of God's deliverance. I don't know if we have a clear historical referent to what was happening or when this, like, there's not a clear record on the Persian side of all no, this. No, there's not. So the, Vashti is probably the Hebrew name for the wife of Xerxes. And we do see that Xerxes leaves at some point. Um, and well, he has to go fight the Greeks. He does. But we also see that there is a, um, a discontinuing of talking about his wife. And so it doesn't look like she is no longer married to Xerxes historically, but she is cast from his presence. That's not the, not bi- the favored. Yeah, the no. Bible says that she, it does not say that they're divorced. It says that she's no longer allowed in his presence. And so she continues being the wife of the emperor, just mm-hmm. not the favored wife of the emperor. Mm-hmm. Xerxes had more than one wife. Mm-hmm. One of the things, one of the kind of the remarkable things about Esther is that uh, Yahweh is not ever named in any way. Why do you think that is? Well, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> well, I have a follow-up question then that will lead us around it. Yeah, well, I don't, I, will, I would say, I don't think it's like, well, it's hard to say. Is like, did they intentionally not ever name God? It's like, I, I don't know. 
I don't know about that, but then it's hard to understand how they wouldn't have. I have thoughts. Yeah. So, but we've got to ask another question first. How do you think we're supposed to see Esther and Mordecai? Are they... Oh, they're secretly villains. No, no, I'm kidding. I was like, okay, tell me about that. They're all secretly villains. Well, do you think that by the time we get to the end of Esther, we're supposed to look at them as, as, as very good guys like Joshua? You know, or are we supposed to see them as morally gray failing doing things that Yahweh would not like I mean as we could say Esther Esther hides her identity Mordecai tells her to do that um, those are as the story goes not great but then at the end of the story we have a butchering mm. I mean it's not just Haman that is killed Esther calls for all of his family to be killed the the Jews rise up and commit terrible acts of violence mm-hmm. at the end of Esther do we see this like, are we supposed to read that as, like, when David is expanding the kingdom and fighting against the enemies of God? Or are we supposed to see that as, this was awful and should not have been done? And so, if it's that, then I think the reason Yahweh's not mentioned is he is still protecting his people. Esther's not a villain, but she's also not a moral exemplar. And one of the things that Yahweh does when he's angry with his people is he gets quiet. Mm-hmm. And we see that over and over again. That's true. I mean, it seems like, at least in in Jewish tradition, Esther is generally pretty unambiguously a hero. Yep. (laughs) And so I, and I don't know. It's Jesus's teachings that give us the biggest problem. No, that's that's true. That's true. Well, or even just that it it doesn't fit. And one of my questions was, does Esther, is Esther an intentional counterpoint to Daniel and some of the other prophets? You know, that Daniel, we talked about this last week, that he kind of offers this example for the exiles not to fall into violent resistance like we would see later with in Jesus' day with the zealots, but also not to fall into idolatrous capitulation to Persia like we saw with the Sadducees in Rome. And Esther is would be an example of the violent resistance. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's just like, no. And so I, it is a good question of like, so what is, 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 is this a, is this one of those tensions like that we've talked about with, with Ezra and who belongs in God's people of like, okay, so Daniel, Daniel never violently resisted, but does that mean that God's people should never violently resist? Well, we know that that gets complicated when we look back into the Old Testament and we see that God commands violence sometimes. Right. I mean, um, Haman is an Amalekite, and right. it has been... He, the it, last of the Amalekites. Right. Well, by the end <laughs> Truly, of it, yeah. there really are no more Amalekites. And the, the fight between God's people and the Amalekites yeah. was talked about yeah. early on. Yeah. At the same time, the number of people killed yeah. in at the end of Esther goes far beyond right. all the Amalekites. Right. And so I, I see, I, I really am convinced that Esther is a woman who's in over her head. I don't think she's a, I'm not saying that she's a villain and we're supposed to read her that way, but I think that she gets caught up in power, which is what something that happens. And when her people are safe and she's given the ability to have her, have their enemies killed, she takes it. Mm. And that's, that's not what Yahweh wants. Well, because then it goes on to say in verse 16, and the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled and defended their lives and had respite from their enemies and killed their foes, 75,000, which is a massive number. And probably an exaggerated yes. number. Yeah. But they did not lay hands on the spoils. And so it seems like this translation is is framing it more 
and I'm not justifying it, but just that it's more of a defensive thing. Well, sure. They're saying they tr- Haman tried to get us, so everyone who has made us feel threatened in any way, now that we have power of the emperor, we are clearing the board so we have no enemies left. And so that, that if so, if she's supposed to be morally, like, ambiguous, then I think that answers the question as to why Yahweh is quiet. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that more. It's okay. And it's not the common belief. And so... Well, but I, I think it is true that Esther, it, es, the story of Esther strikes a bit of a different tone than the other post-exilic books. Oh, yeah. You know, that we're going to more or less keep our heads down and do what he's asked us and and uh, not get into too much trouble. I mean, the inciting incident here is that Haman hatches this empire-wide plot to exterminate the Jews. So, I mean, there is that is a... It's not for nothing, you know, but but in terms of the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh gosh, proportional. It's dis. It's a disproportionate response. Yes. <laughs> you know, going back to like the the whole thing with like Lamech before the flood of like I've killed a young man for wounding me. You know, so I mean that's yeah. I, I just never thought about that dimension of it, but you might be right. Any other thoughts about any of this? Me neither. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.